Billy Graham. Good. And why do we know him? Famous evangelist, right? Because he's old. He is old. In fact, I chose not to show a current picture because I didn't know if you'd recognize him. But he is, he is a, he's been a faithful servant of the Lord. What I'm going to do here is just, this is just a silly quiz for a minute. I'm going to flash up, and these aren't by far all the preachers that there are, but I just thought I'd show some favorite preachers. And Simon, I couldn't find any pictures of your favorites. I thought of you the whole time and couldn't find any pictures of, because Simon and I talk about preachers a lot. And he usually says, I wish you would preach more like this guy. I'm teasing. He never says that. Not at all. Just joking. But uh, let's see. Anybody know who that is? Charles Stanley, right? Out of Atlanta. Yep. Who's that? Jimmy Swaggart. Okay. Benny Hinn. Did I stump you with this? Who? Amy Simple McPherson, right? Founder of the Foursquare. Come on, man. How could you not get that? He went to Foursquare Bible College. <laughs> and Priscilla Shire, all the DFLers. Say, oh, Priscilla Shire. Okay. T.D. Jakes. Joel Osteen. Chan, Francis Chan. It's not me. But I get this a lot from people. They think it's me. His name is Jeff. Uh, no, yeah, Jeff Shreve. He's a, he's on, I don't know, he's on a, he has a TV show called um, Heart Something, I don't know what it is exactly, I'm, I've watched it just to see what he sounded like, because it is funny, I get that a lot, but that's not really what I want to talk about tonight, I want to talk about a famous preacher I bet you do not know, let's see if you recognize this guy, it's not Luther, even though we could have, I was going to show you a video about the Reformation, because the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation was yesterday. It's not Charles Spurgeon. And he really did look like that, just so you know. You have? You should know him. Here's why you should know this guy. And not that you're going to have pictures of this, somebody this, going back this far, but in the mid-1700s, uh, none of you were there, right? In the mid-1700s, the colonists, actually they estimate that over 80% of the American colonists heard him preach firsthand. They say that he is, there was a lot of heroes of the, great, the first great awakening, but he was probably the one that set the great awakening in motion more than any other person in, in American history. But he wasn't American. He was actually English. Uh, he was born in England, and um, he was not a Christian growing up, although he was very, very much into the theater. And so much so that uh, he almost didn't make it to college because of that, because he would skip his studies to practice oratory. And then what happened was um, he went to Oxford and he became acquainted with the Wesley brothers. Anybody know them? Yep, Charles Wesley, the, the founders of Methodism. And he became, uh, he was converted there at Oxford, became part of a club they had called the Holy Club. Isn't that interesting? And he started preaching for the Anglican Church. He was ordained as a minister with the Anglican Church. He later became a, uh, an official minister with them. And then this, this man right here, he made 13 trips to the United or to America, it wasn't the United States at the time, to uh, America, 13 different trips across the ocean. They, do you know who it is? It's not Oswald Chambers. He's a little younger than this guy, um, Oswald is. Uh, 13 trips to, to the Americas, uh, 782 days logged on a ship crossing the ocean. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, he preached 
This is, they estimate, well, they know. He preached 1,800 sermons. 34 years of preaching. He died at the age of 55. He preached 500 sermons a year. If you do the math, obviously, that's more than one a day. Amazing guy. It wasn't really his looks. His name was George Whitfield. What it was, they say about this guy, is that, uh, let me just read you a couple quotes about him. They say that he had no ordinary sermons. What happened was, he, he, what he did is he applied all of his theater background to preaching. So much so that he wasn't welcome in a lot of churches because they said, you are too theatrical, you can't do that here. So what he did is he took it outside. And when he did, the crowds grew even larger. And what was amazing is there would be all this, this elbowing and and people trying to get to the front of the crowd. But once he started to preach, they said a, a stillness came across the crowd and they hung on every single word. And then he preached some very unique things at the time. He preached a personal conversion and the fact that God wanted them personally to know him as a person. Some people believe that his preaching that message actually led in part not only to the Great Awakening, but to the revolution itself. Because no longer were people thinking of themselves as part of a kingdom of this earth, but as individuals that a God knew personally. That's a whole different framework and a mindset that he preached. He preached to slaves. Nobody had done that before. Intentionally, he did that. His preaching was so powerful, they say, that, um, uh, listen to this quote, it says, he portrayed the lives of biblical characters in realism no one had ever seen before. He cried. He danced. He screamed. Among the enthralled was David Garrick, who was then a famous actor in Britain. He is quoted as saying, I would give a hundred guineas. I have no idea how much that is, but a hundred guineas if I could just say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield does. (laughs) He was a powerful guy. In 1739, on one of his trips to Philadelphia, no church could hold the crowd so he held the meeting outside. Over 8,000 came to hear him preach. Later, later before his death, a sermon given in Boston Commons, 23,000 people showed up. They said you could hear his voice an entire, for, a, for an entire city block preaching. Isn't that amazing? It was the largest gathering in American history up to that point. What was that all about? Here's what I want to talk to you about tonight and why I mentioned George Whitfield at all. The reason I mention him is because there's something about it when you preach as if it's real. See, he started in the theater. And think about what, what the theater does. They take something that's imaginary, portray it as real, so that the crowd gets connected and feels like it's real. But a lot of times in churches, especially maybe back then, hopefully we're not making this mistake today, they would preach things that were actually real. They had the truths of the gospel, but they would preach it as if it wasn't real, as as if it was imaginary. What I want us to do is see it as if it's actually real, as as if what we're talking about is real, and it really does change lives and makes a difference. I would love to have seen him preach. It's funny, though, because there's times where we, you know, we've gone through these seasons and different different, uh, denominations and different, different Christian practices. You know, we preach in different styles and different ways and you know, I've been in places where people will criticize maybe the preacher for the way they're preaching and whatnot, and, and I know some of that's cultural, and we get that back and forth, but the bottom line is this. If it's real, it's real, and you're going to act like it's real, and you should be able to tell. should make a difference in how you live and, and how you preach and what, what actually happens. I think about this for a minute. I think, I think that um, if you really believe these things that are in the New Testament and in the Bible, 
It's going to change everything about how you live. I'm going to take us back again to the book of Romans. And you might be thinking, Pastor Dennis, he keeps going back to the book of Romans. You know what I would encourage you to do? You know, these, the book of Romans was just like most of the letters in the New Testament was written as one letter to be read at one sitting. Now, the Ro- book of Romans would be a long letter to read. It would be. But let me just ask, if you were to g- receive a letter, which we hardly get letters anymore in the mail today, but if you were to get a letter from somebody, wouldn't you read it? I want to encourage you to do this. Maybe sit down and read the letter. Because what you'll see is in the first part of the letter, as you're reading it, Paul makes the case and he says, God has done this, 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 and this. And then at chapter 8, it hinges and it says, because he's done all of this, then we need to do this. And if it's all real, then it should change the way you live. So let's take a look at this again. This is in the New Living Translation. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. I, I took that part out, that truly the way to worship him, and I looked at it in quite a few different versions and different translations. I like how it said, truly the way to worship him, because when I read that, I thought, well, wait a minute, it seems like I remember that sounding a little differently. And here's what I was thinking of. I was thinking of the version that says, this is your reasonable service. Do you remember that version? Because that implies something a little bit different than truly the way to worship. It's the same thing, but it does imply a little bit of a difference. One version says it's your true and proper worship. Another version would say it's your spiritual worship. But what I want to do is, is emphasize the part that says it's your reasonable service. That sounds more like an obligation, though, doesn't it? Your reasonable service. That's almost like God is saying here, because I've done all of this, you owe me this type of behavior, right? Does he? Do you? Yes. This makes sense. Well, let's look at it like this. It is an obligation, and typically, we kind of bristle a little bit at obligations, don't we? I mean, we do, unless, unless it's something you want to do. Think about this. If it's an obligation that you 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 want to do, then it's no problem at all. You want to do it. Think about this for a minute. What if it's something that you have to do, but you want to do? Think about your life. How many obligations do you walk through your life doing all the time? We're obligated to a lot of things. Some of the things maybe you don't want to do, they're put upon you, but, but many of those obligations you chose. You chose for yourself. How many of you take care of your children and you think, I really don't want to do this, but I have to. Sometimes. Thank you, Clarence, for that honesty. Sometimes you feel like that. (laughs) That's true. And how tired you are and how many times they've asked, right? Yes, I already said no. What did I just say, right? Think about this. On your wedding day, and you stood there and said, for better or for worse, there were some obligations implied there. How about, how about if we looked at it like it's something you get to do? You get to do it. And why would you get to do it? You'd get to do it not only did God bless you, but it's something you want to do because you love him to that degree that you want to act this way. It's not an obligation that seems heavy. It's not a, a burden, really. It's something you actually want to do. Think about maybe, new, maybe your, your kids isn't a good example. Maybe grandkids is a better example. Because you want to do more for them, right? Because you don't have to take them home with you. That You could send them back home with mom and dad. 
or someone else who's special to you. This, there, are, there are things in life that you don't mind doing, and you would do it, and you would do that, and a lot more. Because it's not out of obligation that you do it. It's because it's out of love. It's out of gratitude. You, you want to do certain things, and you would do that and even more at any cost. Nothing is an inconvenience. Nothing is too much. I think of that old, that old ad, he's not heavy, he's my brother. Yes, anybody remember that? And yet, that's an obligation, but that's an obligation that you want. There's something about it is, with God, it is an obligation, but it's something you get to do. And here's the, here's the funny twist about it all. You have an obligation that you want to do and you get to do, but not only that, the reward for it is immeasurable. You can't really do it for the reward, but the fact is, the reward is amazing. You have an obligation to him, and he's saying, because I did all these things for you, now you get to give your life as a living sacrifice and guess what? I'm going to add on all this wonderful things for you. It's going to be better than you could have even imagined. It's going to be amazing. Think about this for a minute. Think about uh, relationships, if they're done right, how much better it is. There's obligations involved, but they're good things. Think about this for a minute. If everybody's serving each other, no one goes unserved. If everybody's doing for each other, everybody's needs are met. What if... If everybody is, is following you know, the Ten Commandments and nobody's lying to each other, then everybody gets to enjoy that security that comes from knowing we can trust one another. Think about, I just, I just off the top of my head, I thought of a few verses. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And on the one hand, this is an obligation. On the other hand, it's an incredible blessing because if that's what we're doing, then that same thing is coming toward us. And we know that we're not going to be hearing or, or having a foul and abusive language used toward us. And not only that, people are going to be encouraging you, and you will want to encourage them. And it's this mutual encouragement society. It's a good thing. Look at this. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, if we really believed this was true and we lived as if this was real, we would be so well served. Everybody would be taken care of because we'd all be falling over each other to help each other. I mean, every single person would be wanting to help. You would love your neighbor as yourself. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of love for Christ. Wouldn't it be funny if people were fighting over who would submit to who? We'd really be getting along. But that's not how we do. We don't look at that that way. We look at this as an obligation. What? What? I have to submit. I have to give up what I want for you. Who are you? (laughs) The who are you is the fact that they are somebody who Christ loves. And then you think about the golden rule. Do whatever, do, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that's taught in the law and the prophets. If we could only live that way and we actually thought it was true. So many of God's commands are intended for our benefit. They're intended. They, they might seem like a burden, but it's not. It's, it's something that's intended to bless us, something to protect and provide for us. I mean, even the, the fact that intimacy is supposed to be with just your spouse, what does that get you? It gets you security, knowing that you can trust one another. It bonds you with one another. It obviously keeps you from disease and unwanted pregnancies and so many things. I mean, that God had a plan there. The fact is, we get the better end of that whole deal. Yes, we give ourselves as a living sacrifice, but what we get, you can never measure. The fact is, all of it would be better than you could ever imagine. Think about some of the things you get out of this deal. You give yourself to God, 
which on the one hand sounds like a lot, but what do you get? You ever wonder? What do you get? I remember one time we were talking about church membership, and somebody came up later and said, well, what do I get out of it? (laughs) It's a good question. What do you get? You know what you get? You get so many things with God. Here's just a few. He leads and guides you. Now, at the first, I know some of you might be thinking this at first, like, well, wait, I don't want him telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. But the truth is, if you follow him, he leads and he guides you in the right ways. And the places that you, you may want to go may not be the best for you. He actually has something in mind. So let's go again back to the book of Romans. This is, again, the New Living Translation. Don't copy the behavior, the chapter two, 12, verse 2, the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The thing is, I feel like there's a lot of times where we might be praying for something or struggling with something, and then at some point we kind of stop and say, but your will be done, as if, God, this is what I want, and I think this is the best thing, but obviously it's not working out, so I guess have it your way, right? Have you ever had that kind of argument with somebody? Maybe a husband or wife or a friend or a coworker or something? You're arguing, you're, you're making your case, and you can tell it's not working, you're like, you know what, whatever, just do what you want to do, right? But with God, what he wants is the best thing, God's will for you is good and pleasing and perfect. It's actually the best thing. And the fact is that as you get closer to him and you let him transform you into a new person, he will change the way you think and you will be, it'll be more clear and obvious to you that what he wants is actually good and best. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the Phillips translation? You know, there's so many translations of the scripture. I, the Phillips translation, uh, to me, reminds me a little bit of um, the message in a way, just because he uses some familiar vernacular and um, it's, anyway, I want us to take a look at these two verses in the Phillips translation. He says, with w- eyes wide open to the mercies of God. I love that phrase, eyes wide open. And I, I, wide open to what? To God's mercies. Basically, he's saying, remember I told you that pivot, that, that verse pivots the whole book. He says, because of all these things, so he's saying, with your eyes wide open to all the mercies of God that I listed in chapters 1 through 11, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship. I love that twist. Intelligent worship. This makes sense. It's the right thing to do. It actually is intelligent for you to behave this way. As intelligent worship to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable to him. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God is good for you. Did you catch that? You're gonna actually prove it by walking it out that God's plan is actually really good for you. Meets all his demands and moves toward the goal of true maturity. One thing I like about that phrase at the end, true maturity. Is maturity fun? Not always. I mean, really, right? I mean, usually there's something about being immature that you look at and you're like, ah, those silly kids. I've got to, you got to do the grown-up thing. There's this whole meme out there. I don't know if you're aware of this for younger people. They call it adulting. Like they'll say, I'm tired of adulting today. In other words, being an adult, taking on the responsibilities, being mature, making decisions that benefit in the long run, not just in the, in the short term. Because the fact is, maturity is, is, in a lot of ways, putting off till future what you would rather do today. And he says here, 
that, that moves us to the goal of true maturity, true maturity in Christ. The immature says, I want what I want, and I want it my way, and I want it now. Right? God doesn't operate that way. Instead, often he says, I love you too much to give you that now, and I'm going to prepare you for it later, and moves us slower than what we want. So many times, too, we just have such a short-sighted view of what is there. We just can't see it all. Here's, here's something to remember in all of that. I, I've never thought of it this way, but look at this. Did you realize that God, he, he actually wants you to do his will even more than you want him to, want to do his will? And then that he'll work it out for you to make that happen? So many times, John, I know we go to God and we say, God, what's your will? What are you doing here? What's going on? I can't figure it out. And he's saying, I know, and I want to do this for you, and I want to work it out. If you'll be obedient and patient and mature a little bit, adult a little bit, then I'll help you walk through this. He actually wants the best thing for you, and he wants to work it out. You know what I think it comes down to sometimes for some of us? It's about control, isn't it? Right? I want to control. I want to make things work the way I want it to work, and I want to control everything I can in my environment. Well, let me rephrase that. I want to control everything in my environment, and there's a lot of things I can't. And I get frustrated by that. And when it's out of my control and I have to leave it to him or someone else, then I have to step back and say, God, I am frustrated. Why am I frustrated? Because I can't control it. I never could control it. And the fact is, even if I could, I would mess it up. How about we follow him and give some of that control over to him and trust him for the outcome? You know what, something else about God's will is a lot of times his will is not only just in the destination, it's also in the journey. We often have this thought, when I get here, then, and God's saying, well, yeah, when you get there, that's true, but on the way, I have a lot of things for you to do. And on the way, there's people who need you to minister to them. And on the way, there's things I want you to learn. Just getting there is part of it. And it's important, but, but how you get there matters. And the way you walk there matters. I mean, it's so, it's so true that, you know, you, you go on a trip and you want to get there so badly. And there's so many times, I don't know if you've ever done this before, you've been on a trip and there's things to see along the way. And you, nobody ever done that? And you thought, we don't have time. We don't have time to enjoy this trip because we've got to get where we're trying to get to enjoy the trip. <laughs> and you didn't enjoy the trip. He wants to show you things. And if, if in fact, you're going to live as if it is actually real, and you're going to walk it out as if it's real, then that means you're going to trust him along the way, too, not just for the de- destination. Because the destination surely is important, but the trip and the, des- the, the journey along the way is just as important. One, one last thought on that <laughs> is um, God's will isn't always about you. Now, that sounds, I know what that sounds like. I know. Wait, wait, what? (laughs) Do you realize that he uses you to bless and help others too? Do you realize that sometimes um, where you're going is where others need to follow or have been? And the fact is that there are people that he has divine appointments for you to meet that won't happen if you're not paying attention. All you're thinking about is your destination and not the journey. And that along the way, there are people who you need to come in contact with. That, that's the thing about him. It's so hard to get our minds around because 
He is playing this, this huge, huge thing with all of our lives. He's got us fitted into these places. And every move that we make changes these pieces. And he's moving them to all of our good. And we can't even barely do our own life, right? Barely get to work and get our kids ready and get things done. And here we are frustrated and we're like, God, why can't you fix this? And he's moving so many multiplied upon multiplied parts all for his glory. And if you would just relax for a minute and let him work in your life and do what he intends to do in you and through you to the benefit of so many people you come in contact with, divine appointments. We do really get the better end of this whole deal. We get the better end of it all the time. I want us to take a look, take a look real quick at this verse, which sounds, it sounds contradictory. It sounds contradictory. But let's look at this verse in chapter 8, going back just a little bit. And this again is the Phillips translation. Paul says, in my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. The magnificent future, at least a lot of times in our minds, is the destination. But you're going through something on the way, and you're frustrated about the process. And he's saying here that in his opinion, what we may have to go through is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. That's a weird thought, isn't it? That all of creation is watching God make, make you into the image of his son. I mean, who, who is this watching? I mean, here he says all of creation. But, you know, we, we read that one scripture that talks about the, the fact that there's a cloud of witnesses. And, and I don't know about that. And we, we, we have heard that um, we read, too, that the angels are curious about salvation and, and how that works. Because they're different beings, a totally different deal with them and God. So I don't know who that is. All I know is this, that what God is doing with you is a wonderful sight. And to see the sons of God come into their own is an amazing thing. The world of creation cannot as yet see reality because it chooses to be blind. But because of God's purpose, it has been so limited, yet has been given hope. And the hope is that in the end, the whole of created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in that magnificent liberty which can only belong to the children of God. That is you. God has magnificent plans for you. You give him your life. You do, you do. You give him your life as a living sacrifice. And you think about that though. What are we really giving him? I mean, no, no offense to any of you. I could just use me as an example. I'm not giving him a whole lot. I mean, I've got a few ideas and I think this and that and you know, I try to do this and that, but I mean, in the end, really, what have I, I mean, here, God, here's not much. And he has this plan for us. He gives us so much more. I mean, we, we have so little to give, and yet he takes that because he's one of our, we're one of his children, and he loves you so desperately, and he wants the best for you, better than you could ever, ever, ever imagine. You know, what I think about is the fact that we can have this this magnificent thing he's talking about, we can actually have that now. You ever thought about that? I mean, for a lot of us as Christians, we think about heaven as the goal, and it is. But heaven can start now. That relationship with him starts now. I think about a little bit of heaven on earth. I think what he does is 
He gives us a peek about it, a peek into the future and says, here's what it can be. We think about paradise and we try to create a little bit of that now. And he gives us some of that now. He gives us a taste of what is to come to help us make it through that journey. And as he does, he builds in us the character and and does things in us that that really could only be done that way. All God's children have problems and some people have commented, I think Solomon said, life is pain. And it is and it isn't. It's what you make of it. But there is an end in sight. I know um, I mentioned this at the funeral for Sophie and Phil's baby, but in talking with them, they were, it was so profound. I felt like they were so mature beyond their years in some of the things they said at the hospital. And I, I shared this as well, just the fact that you know, being with them in that room and then as their baby pass away and then you walk out of that room and you walk down the hall and there's all these nurses and doctors and they're, they're working and trying to save all these other children and you get in the elevator and there's a little baby in a cart with their parents and you think, God, I have no problems. Zero. I have nothing, I have nothing to complain about. And, and you know, you, you, you ride the elevator down and you just wonder, God, what could be done? How can we do this? And just pray for them as you walk through and pray for those doctors and thank God for what we have. You know, it's all in that process. And many of you have walked through amazing things in your lives. I know some of your testimonies, some of the healings, some of the, the things that God has made happen, some of the things he's brought you through. And think about this for a minute. We, we try, it seems like, as humans to desperately, we try desperately to avoid all suffering, right? I mean, why would you intentionally enter it? But the fact is, I don't think suffering at all devalues our lives. Instead, I think what it does is, is it gives our lives value in the lessons that we learn through it and the things we walk through. That, that process that he brings us through, I think there are things that you can only learn through those types of processes. Think of it like this. If, have you ever been really, really, really thirsty? Ever? Remember how sweet water tasted? Just water. I mean, you have to be really thirsty, though, to know that. I mean, if it's always there for you, you don't even appreciate a glass of water. And have you ever been really, really hungry? I, I mean, my, I, we didn't have a lot growing up, but we were never hungry. I and mean, we ate a lot of beans, we ate a lot of rice. I thought everybody did. But you know what? I was never hungry. I mean, the only time I've been hungry was intentional. You ever been really lonely? I mean, really lonely? Where you ache inside, even in public, in a crowd, and you feel like you're completely alone? And then you really, really, really appreciate companionship and connection with another human being? You ever been really tired? I mean, so tired where you close your eyes and your head swims, and you think, God, if I could just lay down right now. You ever been really hot? I mean really hot where you can't get away from it and you feel like you're not going to be able to breathe anymore or really cold and your ankles ache, really broke, and you really, really don't have any money and you don't know what you're going to do, really hurt, really in pain. Have you ever seen rain fall on parched earth? like a rain where it hasn't rained in a long time, you can almost hear the ground cheering. 
it's, it's weird. It's, you know, I think it's because it, when it hits, it, it kind of slaps in a certain way. It just sounds like, like the grass is happy. And I don't think we appreciate those things without having the lack of them. I don't think you really know what it's like unless you've been without. And I believe that God gives us those experiences so that we can appreciate what he's given. And those things seem so much sweeter. It adds a perspective that you can't have without those experiences. A, a perspective on what's important. At one point, Phil whispered in my ear, hug your children today. Man. So true. You appreciate what really matters, people and relationships and life and love and hope. And he gives us a taste of heaven. And if you were to really live as if that's real, you live differently. It changes everything. I mean, as if it's really real, as if God is really good all the time, which he is, and you can experience a little bit of heaven on earth. And here's what I want us to do tonight. We've got a few minutes here. We, it's a little bit early. It's just a little after eight, and you know, youth won't be out for another 25 minutes, probably, or 20, and kids, same thing. Here's what I'd like you to do for just a minute. If David, if you could put some music on, and what I would love is for you to take just a moment. It might be, it just might be a moment. For some of you, it might be longer, but um, what I want you to do is take a moment, and I just want you to take a survey back through your life, even back through this day, and yesterday, and this week, and I want you to start thanking him for some of the things he's done. Some of the things he's brought you through. And you may be in the middle of a difficult thing and it may seem impossible to even thank him for that. But, but what I want you to do is try to see the beautiful things that he's even doing in the middle of that. See if he doesn't give you just a little bit different perspective. And then whenever you do choose to leave, it's fine whenever, but whenever you do choose to leave, what I'd ask you to do is just take a minute and talk to one person, just one, and, it could be more if you want to, but it could be just one person. I want you to tell them one thing he's done for you. One little thing. One thing. It doesn't have to be a big dramatic thing. It could be. It could be. Whatever God puts on your heart to just share. But there's something about recognizing and acknowledging it between you and him. And then another level when you tell somebody, this is what God did for me. I want you to do that before you leave. With someone. You may be one of those... You want to talk to a few, and that's fine. But uh, at least one person, if you just share one thing, he's done. So to be clear, let's do this. We'll take a minute. We'll do an evaluation. God, what are you doing with me now or today or have been this week? Or Just kind of race through 10, 20, 30 things. I don't know, whatever it is for you. And then whenever you choose to leave after you've thanked him for a few of those things, just tell somebody one thing, one thing. God, I pray for us, for all of us, for me, for, for these friends of mine that are here. And God, we, <laughs> we need you to make us new, to change our minds, like I said in that Phillips translation, to, to change the way we think. God, you ask for us to give, us, give, give ourselves to you, and it seems like a lot, but really it's not. Not compared to what you give back to us. We are so grateful for that. And I pray that you would, would continue not only to remind us, but, but help us, guide us as we walk through life's situations, whatever they are. God, I don't know what different ones in this room are walking with or dealing with, but I pray in the name of Jesus that you would come close to them right now and walk with them through it. Pray for those who are in need of healing, whether it's 
physical or spiritual or emotional or those who are needing help financially or God, I pray that you would, you would reconcile relationships that, that are wounded and hurting. God, you, you are the miracle maker. I just pray you would do those things. God, we are grateful for all that you've done. We praise your name today. Amen.